0: In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Have a seat.
1: Morning.
2: We are Dave and Christina here in Gozo.
1: Um, we've been buried for six and a half years. We've been coming to Crossroads uh, ever since we moved to Grand Rapids about five years ago. And um, our journey into the whole area of foster care and adoption started even before we were married?
2: When I was 18, I was told by a doctor that the only way I would have children was with medical intervention. Um, We chose not to go there. We chose to trust God and to know that he would provide a family for us when he wanted and the perfect kids for our life. Um... Our foster care classes started last spring. We've been licensed for a year now. In that year, we've been on a roller coaster. Um, Emotional roller coaster that's been a wild ride. We've had kids in our house for a day, for two weeks. Um, Our first placement's still with us. He's been here for 10 months. Um, God has been faithful. He's blessed us abundantly. We have a wonderful community around us of like-minded people. There have been many points where we've wanted to quit. We've wanted to walk away and just be done. The system is flawed. Um, The state of Michigan is flawed. Um, We can't quit, and we won't quit, because God commanded us to walk into this journey, and we have been commanded to walk well. Um, His orphans are where our heart is. The past couple of weeks, God keeps putting Nineveh on my mind and the wickedness of it. And taking the wickedness of Nineveh and comparing it to the foster care system and what these children and bio parents and agencies go through and what the foster parents go through, Jonah ran away from that and he shouldn't have. And Dave and I are choosing to walk into that and to be blessed because of it.
1: I'm just curious, who of you have been called to that? Could you stand if you've actually been called to it and um, are either fostering or adopting kids?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You guys can be seated. text for today is Isaiah 61. Does that surprise anyone? (laughs) I thought I was going to be done with it by the end of summer, but there's a little piece, a very small, significant piece that I couldn't leave. And because we've uh, been in Isaiah 61, and some of you haven't been here all summer, so you don't really know what Isaiah 61 is, I'm just going to have to tell you to Start reading it right now or read it later because right now I'm going to focus on this piece. Verse 7 of Isaiah 61. Hey, 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 What do we do here? For the reading of God's word. Come on, you sit for my word, stand for God's. Instead of their shame, my people will receive the Mishneh, a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And they will inherit the Mishneh, a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. This is God's word. You can be seated. Right? The the double portion... As I, as I stated, in, in Hebrew it's called the Mishneh or the double. You could just simply call it the double. This is a concept that shows up in quite a few places in the Bible. And so this morning, these are the questions I want to ask in light of this concept. What is it, the double portion? What is it? Who is it for? And why do we need it? Now, first, uh, just a little bit of background. When the text says, instead of shame and instead of humiliation, you will have the double portion. Now, I don't know if you know the context here, but if you understand it, you understand that this is an incredible promise considering everything that God's people are going through. They have been humiliated. They are enduring much shame. In fact, that word for shame there could even be translated disappointment or deep, deep disappointment. Um, here's what's going on. This powerful nation called Assyria has come, out, come on and just literally wiped out Israel. Wiped them out. Now you have just Judah standing alone. In fact, there's a text in Isaiah 37, this simple verse. Isaiah 37 verse 11, it says, Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. The Assyrians not only came and destroyed, they raped, they pillaged, they tortured, they flayed, They impaled, and they would go from town to town, rape, pillaging, torturing. In fact, they would take a lot of these victims that they impaled, literally taking a a person and just, boom, putting them on a stake to die. And they'd carry these things now to the next town. And so the people in that town would see what was about to happen to them. Everything is falling apart. They're devastated. They're hopeless. And it's in this context that God provides the promise of the Mishneh, the double portion. Now what is it? Well let's look where it's first given. The double portion is first given to God's people when they're where? Does anybody know? The desert. Now The desert is that that intensely difficult place. It's that place where we are made poor, where we are humbled, where we're stripped down to nothing, where we have nothing but God. Some of you are there right now. That's the desert. What's interesting is that the Bible teaches that God leads his people to the desert. We don't just, through circumstances, find ourselves there, but God leads us there because God not only only wants to get his people out of Egypt, but God also wants to get Egypt out of his people. This is why God leads us into the desert. It's the way he weans us off the world and living for the world and how he gets our souls to hunger and thirst for him. Now, what I love about the desert, at least in the biblical story, is this that the deeper God's people went into that desert. And the more intense that desert became, the more intense was their experience of God to the point that every day, water is gushing from a rock, manna is being rained down from heaven. They didn't even have to worry about the next day. They moved when God said move. They ate when God said eat. They rested when God said rest. And it was in this place... This desert place where God became their everything. Where they had just enough for each day. Just enough manna, just enough water, just enough shade. In fact, just take the manna for instance. Does anybody know what manna even means? What is it? Now think about that. They don't know what it is. That they are called to eat. So they even have to trust God in that. I mean, I love what Ann Voskamp has to say in her book, A Thousand Gifts, a book that Libby's just been reading and she gave this to me. But she says they literally have to fill themselves on that which has no meaning. And for more than 14,000 days, they take their daily nourishment from what they don't comprehend. And they eat the mystery. And that mystery, which made no sense, becomes honey to their lips. Listen to me on this. Because desert is a fact of life. As I said, many of you are there right now. Desert is not just a place to be endured. The desert is God's gift to us. To wean us off of the small things, the unsatisfactory things, and to get us to hunger and thirst and delight in real manna, in real food. In fact, I love how it says this in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. It says, God humbled you, God let you be hungry, So he could feed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers did not know, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Only in the desert are we able to experience this mystery, and are we able to experience the God who provides this mystery. Can anyone say amen to that? Now listen, it's in the desert where God institutes Sabbath. Where God says, one day a week, I want you to trust me even more. I want you to stop. I want you to lay everything down. I want it to be just you and just me. When God says this, their question was the right one. It was, can we gather the manna? God says, no. They say, well, what are we going to eat? God says, I'm going to give you the Mishneh, the double portion. So think about this. Every week for 40 years, God's people were to trust God for the Mishneh, for the double portion. God's saying to them, can you trust me? Can you lay aside all your striving, all your producing, all things, all your effort to make things and produce things, can you trust me to provide? And I love this because every week for 40 years, God's people experienced the double portion, the provision of God as they trusted him. Then they enter the land. Then God says, just so you don't forget I'm now going to implement the Sabbath year in Jubilee. Things that we talked a lot about this summer. Meaning this. Every seven years, God says, I want that seventh year to be a Sabbath year. I want you to just stop. I want you to stop planting. I want you to stop harvesting. I want you to stop making things happen. I want you to stop trusting yourselves and your own effort and your minds and your skills. And I want you for a whole year... To trust me. Their question: What will we eat? God's answer: I will provide the mishneh, the double portion. What's sad for me is this: when you read the when, when you read the Bible, is that God's people never in their entire history celebrated the sabbatical year or jubilee. Why not? Because I think they had the same problem that infects many of us. We fail to trust God. In fact, uh, there's this... There's this uh, Passage in Second in Chronicles 36 that, that tells us why God then punishes them. Second Chronicles 36, let me just uh, quickly read this. It says, and this is what God did. He says, that "...he carried them into exile to Babylon, the remnant who escaped from the sword. They became servants to him and his sons until the king of Persia came to power." So God God exiled them. Then verse 22, the land now enjoyed its Sabbath, Sabbath rest all the time of its desolation. It rested. God took them out of the land so that the land could rest. And it rested, the word says, until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment to the word that the Lord had spoken by Jeremiah. In other words, God takes this seriously. Us trusting him us being willing to stop and to cease and to stop thinking this is all about us. So much so that when God's people couldn't stop because they couldn't trust God, because, so they couldn't rest or let the land rest, God says, okay, I'll take care of that. I'll exile you. And for 70 years, I'm going to give the land rest. Do you know how long God's people were in the land? 490. God's saying, I will have my way and I will have my land rest. They didn't trust God. Their prosperity gave them this middle-class attitude. In fact, in Deuteronomy 8, I find these words to uh, be quite almost depressing because God is actually saying what they're going to do in the land before they get in the land. And God's God's saying that when you get into this land where you go from where you are poor in the desert to being middle class in my land, you're going to develop this middle class attitude, this smug, self-sufficient attitude mindset that i can do everything in my own strength i i don't really need god in fact look at how god puts this in deuteronomy 8 he says you may say to yourself my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me but remember the lord your god for it is he who gave you the ability to produce wealth do you know that today You can't do anything. We can't do anything except that what God gives to us to do. And then God says, because you say these things, my power, my strength have produced this wealth for me. He says, when you forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, he says, in verse 19, he says, If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow the other gods and worship and bow down to them, I will surely destroy you like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God, which was essentially the call for them to trust him. They didn't trust him. Now, the last couple of weeks, some of you are really rocked by this notion that God only comes for the poor. And I want to emphatically say, yes, that's true. God only comes for the poor in spirit. The poor are those who trust him. A a, a middle-class attitude is is this attitude that trusts itself. It trusts its own strength. It trusts its own talents. It trusts its own mind. It trusts its own effort. It trusts what its hands can do. But the poor in spirit, they trust God because they know they have nothing. They have no power. They have no resources. They have nothing of value that they can trust in and of themselves. So what they do is they fix their eyes on the one who has the power who has the resources, and they trust him for his daily bread. Is that you today? Will you trust him? Will we trust him? See, in our own way, we all live in a desert. And we are living in a world that is becoming more a desert. And so our question is really their question. What will we eat on the seventh day? What are we going to eat in the seventh year? And will we trust him for his manna? And I want to say this even goes beyond today in this life. Will we trust God To provide on the seventh day of the seventh millionth year, when we stand at the edge of our grave and we are looking into eternity, will we trust Him? Will we trust Him when towers collapse? Will we trust Him when accidents happen? Will we trust Him when we lose things? Will we trust Him when He leads us in the desert? See, the double portion is something that comes out of the desert. It's for those who are in the desert, and it's for those who trust God in the desert. In fact, think about Job. Think about his desert. In fact, for some of us, it's hard to be in this room right now to feel that prick in our hearts. I mean, I I feel it strongly today. And we look at Job in his desert. And we look at his response. And we all become amazed because he can say things like, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And blessed be the name of the Lord. And we're kind of left saying, at least I am, God help me respond to my desert the way Job responded to his desert. But here's what I want us to know today. Job isn't perfect. Job is a sinner. And like all of us, Job too... Needs a desert, and I'm guilty of this. I don't know about you, but I give a lot of attention to the beginning of the book of Job. But it wasn't until really this week that I understood the end of the book of Job. Are you familiar what's in the last chapter? Let me take you there. Job 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. <laughs> who can say that today? I know the people who can say that today. It's people who are in the desert and have been through the desert. And listen to what he says. He says, And you asked, Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did, I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. And you said, listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Now listen to what Job says in verse eyes. He says, my ears had heard about you, but now my eyes, my eyes have seen you. Job goes from knowing about God to intimately knowing him to the point that he can say, I've seen him. Only people in the desert who have been through desert can say that. And look at how he continues this. He says, Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I mean, this is no smug, self sufficient middle class attitude here. Job is poor in spirit because that's what the desert does, it makes us poor. And therefore, Job says in verse 6, I repent in dust and ashes. I repent in dust and ashes. Job now is going God's way. And Job, like Naaman with his leprosy, all he can now bring to God is his dust and ashes, his repentance, his willingness to go God's way, no matter what the circumstances are. That's Job. Now look at verse 10. When Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as before. There's that Hebrew word, mishne. Job, out of his suffering, gets the double portion. Now I want to start with just the first part of this thing, Let me ask this. Why is this here? Is this just to take an awful story and all of a sudden make it just amazing? Is this just like a fairy tale? Like Job's life, it's it's so bad, it's so pathetic, but now all of a sudden, ooh, at the end, he gets double? I'm going to tell you what this is. This is the hope that every single one of us who know God, who trust God in the desert, believe that God is going to do, whether in this life or the next, he is going to restore everything. Everything. He's going to make everything right. And the way the Bible describes this is using the word Mishneh. He gets the double portion In fact, when you look at verses 11 and 12, you can add all that stuff up, all the camels and all all his possessions, and you can take that to the verse verse 2 of the book and see literally how God does this. Do you trust him for that? Now, I want also for you to look closely at verse 10 because this is the way it reads. The Lord restored Job's life When he prayed for his friends. When Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his life and gave him the Mishneh. So I asked myself, okay, now what's going on here? Well, if you know the book of Job, Job is throughout the book trying so hard to make sense of his suffering. He's trying to make sense of God in light of his suffering. And he has these three friends who come to him and try to explain some of these things to him. And Job, most of the time, is hurt by these things. And God is angry with the things these friends say. Because their counsel is not even close to the heart of God. But now, at the end of the book, God says to these guys, He says, I'm going to forgive you, but you need to take seven bulls, seven rams, take them to Job. Why Job? because Job's suffering has made him divinely beautiful. It's made him godlike. And God is saying, "Here is a man who can put me on display, who can show me off to the world. Here is a man who can priest for me." And see what the text wants to, wants us to see is that these guys go to Job And Job prays for them, Job priests for them. And what the text wants us to see is that after Job prays, after he priests, it's only then that God gives him a double. Again, even in our suffering, even in our desert, we have been blessed to be a blessing. We have been called to be a nation of Job's who know how to suffer, and suffer well, and in our suffering, we priest. We stand in the gap. Is that you today? Is that this church? Because I'm gonna say this right now. The reason why this church exists, we do not exist for ourselves. We do not exist for our tribe. Or our kind. We do not exist to do this. To conduct worship services. We exist for this city. We exist for our neighbors. We exist for the nations. We exist for the lost. We exist for the broken. We exist for the captive. We exist for the widow, the orphan, and the least of these. And we exist to priest for them. Like Job. In fact, I'll take this even further. We don't exist to see our lives transformed by God. Solely. God for me. But God transformed me so you can use me to transform your world. God, restore me, restore us, right? And see, if we really understand this, this is why this next piece of the double portion is so critical, because what we're called to do must flow out of who we are. We have to know who we are. Who, in the Bible, gets the double portion? Anybody? The firstborn son. See, Job became to God like a firstborn son. Exodus 4.22 says about Israel that Israel is God's firstborn son. Practically speaking, the firstborn son received the blessing of the double portion. It was double the inheritance, but it was more than just material blessing. It was this, in effect, Having the most powerful and influential person in the clan say to the firstborn, you are incredibly special. There's no one like you. I don't care who you are today. I don't care what you have. I don't care how good your life is. We all crave the blessing of the firstborn. We all want people who we admire and look up to say to us, there is no one like you. We got this uh, guy who we've really brought into our family, one of Gabe's friends, and he's grown up his whole life never knowing who his dad is. I go to his football games, and I see this kid at least ten times, I mean, or more than that during the game. He's constantly looking up in the stands looking for me, but even more than me, my dad. He wants to see my dad. In fact, one time he said to me, he said, he said, Rod, when I see your dad in the stands, you have no idea what it does for me. It's kind of like this guy who's never had a dad. It's like, look, daddy, can you see me? Are you proud of me? That's in all of us. Right now, I'm a football coach. I get to spend 10 hours of my week with 22 kids. You know what I see in their eyes every single day when they're looking at me? They want a dad. They want someone who's going to believe in them, who's going to tell them what it means to be a man, who's going to exhort them, encourage them, delight in them, love them. Why is this? I mean, think about Jacob. Jacob is this, is this vivid picture of what most of us will do to get this blessing of the firstborn. I mean, we'll do anything and everything. We'll dress up like someone else. We'll pretend to be someone we're not. We'll cover up and mask all of our flaws and weaknesses. We'll hide our failures. We'll do anything to get the blessing of the firstborn. And I'll tell you why this is. It's because the God who made the world is a father. And we've been made to know this father, to belong to this father. And our God, this is only unique to Christianity, our God is a trinity. More specific to that, our God in in this trinity of, of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a family. And the reason why you and I have been made, whether you know this or not, is so that we could experience the everlasting joy of being in this family and belonging to this Father and having this Father know us and love us and delight in us and accept us. And see, even our earthly fathers are only shadows of the Father for which we've all been made. At best, they're stand ins. Even the best ones fall so short. Of the fatherhood of God. In fact, I know as I speak of some of this, it just it, it, it pricks some of you in your heart because your experience with your own father has been so painful and it's difficult for you to right now comprehend this heavenly father who so much wants to know you and love you and delight in you, believe in you. But you know what? The whole story of the Bible is that we've lost the Father, we've lost home, that we were orphaned, that we lost our big brother. But the story of the Bible is this, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they came, they sought us, they found us, and they took us home. In fact, think about these words from Jesus. It says, he says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I mean, why did Jesus come? He came to show us the Father. It's why He left the Father, it's why He left His home. He crossed all worlds to come to our world to show us the Father and to take us home. That's why the Bible uses words like adoption to describe what God offers us in Christ. We are adopted by God, we are brought back into the family of God for which we've been made as sons and daughters of the King. In fact, one of the stories that's quickly becoming one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is the story of Mephibosheth, because Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan and the, and the grandson of King Saul. This guy grew up as a prince in a palace, but on the, on, in year five of his life, Mephibosheth lost everything. He lost his dad, he lost his grandpa to war, he lost his life in the palace, And on this tragic day, his nurse dropped him. He lost the ability to ever walk again. So at five, he's orphaned. He changes his name to Mephibosheth, which means full of shame and disappointment. So he goes into hiding from the new king. He lives in this place called Lodabar, which means wasteland or desert. Years later, when he's all grown up, he gets a knock on his door. The king wants you. But he can't run. He can't hide. He's brought before the king. And he falls face down before King David. And all he can say is, you're slave. And expecting the sword, David instead says to him, Mephibosheth, do not be afraid. You're no slave to me. You are to be my son. You are to eat at my table all the days of your life. You are to live in my palace as one of my own sons. And see, this little story captures for me the whole story of the Bible, because you know what? We two were once princesses and princes. We've lost our home. We've lost our palace. We're living in a place called wasteland. We're orphaned. We're far from home. Our name has become shameful. But here's the story of the Bible. The king of all kings, he loves us, He's come seeking us, to find us, to rescue us, to bring us home. That's the gospel. In fact, Jesus' last recorded prayer, he prays this, Father, would you love them even as you love me? See, that's God's heart for adoption. That our Father would love us as much as he loves his own Son, And think about how much God loves his son right now. He loves you that much. Do you know the love of the father? Does that burn in you? Does that shape who you are? See, when you have the love of the king, it doesn't matter what the peasants think. Do you know this, love? That he delights in you. That he will do anything to get you back to himself. You know what Hebrews 12 says? Not only have we been adopted, but we are the church of the firstborn sons. We. We. I'm looking right now at God's firstborn sons. Meaning, right now, we have all the rights, all the privileges, we have the status of the firstborn son. What's that? Well, in Deuteronomy 21, it says the firstborn got the double portion of his father's inheritance. Now, listen to Isaiah 61, verse 7. Instead of your shame, my people receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will re- rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. Firstborn, son, we get the inheritance. What's the inheritance? Well, In 2 Chronicles 21, the first three verses, before King Jehoshaphat dies, he gathers up his sons to him, and the text says he divides up his inheritance. And it says to all his sons he gave silver, he gave gold, some he gave towns. But then it says to Jehoram, his firstborn son, he gave the kingdom. Did you get that? As his firstborn son, he gave us the kingdom, the kingdom. He gave us the very rule of God that brings shalom to chaos, his kingdom which is good news to the poor, his kingdom which is healing for the brokenhearted, which is recovery of sight for the blind, which is lepers being healed and and lame walking, The dead being raised. Or it's verse 4 of Isaiah 61 or verse 7 of Isaiah 58. It's ancient ruins being rebuilt. It's places long devastated being repaired. It's cities being restored. It's God making all things new. It's jubilee. That's the kingdom. that has been given to us. so the double portion is more than having these special rights and privileges. The double portion means for us as, as firstborn sons, it means double the responsibility. It's the responsibility of being entrusted with his kingdom, a kingdom that's for all families, all peoples, all nations. It's been entrusted to us. And see, so many today want the rights and the privileges of being a child of God, but they don't want the huge responsibility that comes with it. But here's the deal. As his firstborn son, we are to represent him. We wear his name. We are called to care for the world. We are called to be passionate about the things God is passionate about. Our mission is to be God's mission, and God's mission is jubilee. It's to set the slave free. It's to see the blind see. It's to preach good news to the poor. It's to make all things new. That's what we've been entrusted with. At the heart of God's mission is adoption. Do you know that? This is who God is. It's what God does. I mean, Jesus tells us that our father is the father of the fatherless, and the least of these are his brothers. I mean, for this reason alone, adoption must be given great priority here. And so you're left asking, well, well, what do you mean by adoption? Well, adoption is not just a few couples who want children or want to have more children. Adoption and and, and capturing God's heart for adoption is creating an entire culture here. A culture that sees adoption as central to the heart of God. Central to the Great Commission. It's, It's a sign of the gospel itself. He adopted us. So we can adopt. Which means that when we see need, we adopt it. We bring it in. And we pour Christ into it. And I'll tell you what, for many of us in this place, I know this is what's bubbling up. It will be adopting in the fatherless. It'll be be seeing that need and, and, and taking that need in, taking that need into our homes and pouring Christ into it. For others, it will be the widow. I'm hoping it will be more and more also about the elderly. I mean, who's taking care of the elderly these days? Who's adopting them? Or what about broken marriages? I can't believe how many broken marriages I'm seeing every single week. Who's adopting those marriages? What about our young people? Do you see their need? Do you see their reality? They are crying out for fathers, for spiritual mothers and fathers who will take them under their wing. Who's going to adopt them? See, our world right now is desperate for spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, Christ followers, who will, who will see need, move to need, adopt need, and lay their lives down for that need, and pour Christ in that need. And every family, every marriage, every person, if you belong to the body of Jesus Christ, you need to be asking, who, in light of the fact that I've been adopted, will I adopt? Who? Who are the people in my world right now who are in need? Do we even have eyes to see them? Are we living in places where we even can see them? And when we see it, are we moving towards it? And are we bringing it in? And are we pouring Christ into that? That's why this church exists. If you want to know what we're about, it's not this. We will do this a couple times a year. But today is not the Super Bowl. (laughs) Today is just another day for us to get our marching orders from our God and to hear who we are and what we've been called to do. And I want to end with this. Do you know how massive this is? Do you know what this demands from us? I look at what God has called us to be and called us to do, and you know what I say? I can't do that. I even project that on you guys and say, we can't do that. We can't. In our own strength. that's why we need to be like Elisha. Elisha took on Elijah's mantle which represented the kingdom of heaven being breaking out and and I know Elisha as he's following Elijah he 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 wanted that mantle he wanted to be an extension of that but the whole time he's just like I can't do it I I have nothing to offer I'm poor and I love it what does he do when Elijah passes and he gets Elijah's mantle he says I need a double I need a double portion of your spirit, Elijah. Ask him for it. Beg him. Seek him. Because our world needs us to be Christ to it, and we need him to be Christ to them. Let's pray. God, we bless you for this amazing reality that right now you smile on us, that you are a heavenly Father. You love us. You delight in us. You take care of us. You provide for us. We've been blessed to be a blessing. And God, I just pray that that would burn in our middle class attitudes. So we could not trust ourselves, but trust you. We could come to you poor. We could come like Elisha, just realizing the great calling that you've placed in our lives and just humbly fall at your f- face and say, God, would you give to me a double anointing of, of your spirit? Maybe there are some here today right now that just are praying that because they so want to be a priest. Your hands, your feet, your heart to this world, and they're realizing they can't do it. Lord, and if there are any people here in that that place, God, I just pray that you would hear this cry right now going up to you because, God, we want to be about your kingdom in your world. We need you to rouse us up out of living for ourselves and trusting in ourselves. Lord, we want to bow at your feet. We want to seek your face with all, your, all our hearts, Lord. We want to be about you and your kingdom. It's massive. So I ask you too, Lord, I need you. And it's out of deep need, God would you? Would you fill me? Would you give me a double? Would you give this church a double? I pray?